November marked the second consecutive month of growth in the housing market after what was a bit of a COVID-19 induced dip in house prices. Essentially, we saw between the onset of stage two restrictions in March and September, um, the Australian property market started to decline. Uh, Now, at the beginning of the year, the consensus was that there would be this big peak to trough decline of about 10% nationally. Uh, Of course, that didn't happen. And in the period, property values on aggregate have fallen just 2%. So as of October and November, that started to trend towards a recovery. Uh, And we've seen over November, the aggregate um, housing values have increased by 0.8%. It's been a little bit mixed between the capital cities. Uh, Every capital city has seen an increase, which is great news, especially for Melbourne, where prices have been most impacted by the virus. Um, But we've seen that it is the smaller capital cities, Adelaide, Perth, Darwin, Canberra, Um, that have seen increases of above 1% in the space of a month. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast, where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills and their money and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests. Every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash invested. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. What's this year been like for you? And what have you learned from 2020? At the time of this recording, we're entering into the festive season at the end of 2020. That time of the year when we start reflecting on the year that was and start thinking about the year that will be in the months ahead. Before we get into the focus of today's discussion though, let's reflect for a minute on the learnings from what has been for many a very challenging and tumultuous year as a result of our responses to the global pandemic. Now, I feel a little bit guilty about this, but for my wife Sonia and I and our know-how property finance team, 2020 has actually been a good year both personally and professionally. Yes, we've been landlocked in Victoria away from our home and friends in South Australia since the beginning of the year. And yes, I've felt a bit like a bush ranger on many occasions when I'm out and about as I fog up my glasses wearing a mask. And as a touchy-feely sort of guy, I've missed my high fives and the man hugs with my mates playing hockey or going to the gym. And yes, the overall heightened sense of constant underlying uncertainty has left us feeling mentally and physically bone-tired after what has felt like a very long and gruelling year. But on the flip side, the positives have outweighed the negatives on just about every level. The lockdown has meant that I've been able to connect with my son Adrian at a much deeper level than ever after he was stuck with us here when he came to visit in mid-March and he's creating a great life for himself. We also got to spend great time with Sonia's mum who lived with us for many months both before and after her recent hip operation. Professionally, COVID has forced banks to make changes that now allow us to conduct our home loans and finance business totally remotely And clients are also now happy to meet via Zoom, eliminating travel time and inconvenience for all. And the contagion created the much-needed impetus to reach out to every client we've ever dealt with. And we've built automated communication systems that have improved our long-term relationships with our clients out of sight. And the feedback has been amazing. So on balance, this has been a really good year for us. What about you? What has your year been like and looking back on it, how do you feel? The noticeable things for me this year is that the pandemic was 
both global in scale in that every single one of us on the planet has been affected by it almost overnight. And second, that bad news about the contagion has been amplified and magnified by a constantly streaming media. I've also learnt that now, more than ever, we're driven by fear. Fear that's fueled by this all-pervasive, instantaneous, always-on media in all of its forms, from mainstream right down to socials. I've also come to realise that this fear, along with the information silos that are created by our individual social media preference algorithms, along with a concentration on opinion-based reporting that's no longer linked to facts, these are collectively creating an increasing divided world, both physically, socially and ideologically. The obvious switch from the United States of America to what can only be described as the divided states of America, which has increasingly emerged from the American presidential election, which is a really obvious example. And one of my major takeaways is that radical uncertainty and unpredictable constant change will now be an ongoing feature of our lives moving forward. So how do we cope with this prospect? As martial arts legend Bruce Lee was famous for saying, Be water, my friends. Let me share his full quote. Be water, my friend. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. You put water into a cup, it becomes a cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes a bottle. You put water into a teapot, it becomes a teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. So be water, my friend. What is it to be water? Water flows and adapts. It's flexible to deal with the environment that it finds. It fully explores the space and opportunities in front of it. It has no expectations of what it's going to find. It remains the same inside even as it flows and adapts outside. When Lee says to be formless, my interpretation is that people shouldn't allow themselves to be trapped in a certain mindset. Instead, we need to be able to adapt to situations, grow, and change by adopting the qualities of water. Legend has it that Bruce Lee had a realisation when he would practice punching water. He discovered that no how, no matter how hard he struck water, he just couldn't hurt it. Though water seemed weak, it could penetrate the hardest substance in the world. Its formlessness and its adaptability led Lee to conclude that he wanted to become like the nature of water. Be water, my friend. A calm, flexible mind can adapt to any situation. Stop thinking you need to control all aspects of your life. Listen to your inner voice and know that the thing that you can control is your reaction to any situation that you can find yourself in. In our current artificial remote control world, where just about everything is at the click of a button, we have an illusion that we can... We can and need to be in control of absolutely everything in all aspects of our life. With our overstimulated minds, we've created the illusion that we can control all internal and external forces that are around us. When we lose control then, we feel heightened fear, anxiety and stress. And we often feel like that we've failed. However, adopting an empty, open mind is more like water. Adopting a calm, flexible mind allows us to be open and flow with the circumstances so that we can then respond accordingly. In this way, we don't lose control, but we redefine it. We accept that we can't control everything that happens, but we can control how we react to it. Being water means being adaptable in terms of making the best of what is, what is reality, not as we want it to be, and accepting it if it's something that we can't change. It also means to take personal responsibility and be proactive in our lives. Water is a magnificent example of adaptation to your environment. When water meets a challenge, it adapts in many ways. It flows around rocks, sand, species that live in it. If it's too hot, it transforms itself into vapour and returns as mist, rain or dew. 
If it's too cold, it freezes and then just waits until the surroundings let it flow again. Being water means being open to new ideas, methods of doing things, etc. It's about not staying in the same place but constantly changing. So, be water, my friend. To sum it up in three words, it means that we need to accept, adjust and adapt. It doesn't matter what comes our way, you can deal with it as best you can. So let's break. Accept, adjust and adapt down. First we learn to accept. To accept the situation is to acknowledge it. We don't deny it's happened. We don't scurry and hide when things don't work or whimper for help. We have to depend on ourselves to solve the situation or at the very least make the situation better than we found it. Next we need to adjust. Things are different now. It won't go back to the good old days or simpler times or remember back when. None of those states are mind. If we don't adjust, we'll get left behind. Things change, we need to change with them. And there's no shame in asking for help or cooperating with others to make it happen. Finally, we need to adapt. Whatever befalls us, whatever we've lost, whatever fate has dealt us, we must adapt to it and move on. We're new people now. The old us is gone. As First Lady Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of US President Franklin D. Roosevelt, once said, you gain strength, courage and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I've lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think that you cannot do. One thing's for sure, this won't be the last pandemic or other form of global shock. But now we're more ready to cope and deal with it. Now more than ever, the future is going to belong to those of us who become adaptable, creative catalysts. Be water, my friend. So on the spirit of getting vested, over the next few episodes, we'll be checking in with expert views from a number of angles to assist you in understanding what has happened and what's likely to happen so that you can decide what, if anything, you want to do about it and then make better informed adaptive decisions. To kick things off this week, in our what I'm referring to as our reflective summer series, and given the rare window of opportunity that has emerged with property, we'll replay a recent episode of the Real Estate Talk Show that... You can also see in full Technicolor video format at channels.realty, that's R-E-A-L-T-Y, so channels.realty.com.au forward slash real estate talk. And you'll actually be able to see firsthand that I've definitely got a head for radio and podcast. (laughs) Now, as part of my new regular anchor hosting role on this Australia's most popular property show, Real Estate Talk, This week we start at the macro data level and then drill down to the micro hands-on practitioner level to review property performance across the country at a number of levels. I've said levels about three times there. (laughs) Now, my interviews start with more positive news on the upward trajectory of property across the nation based on CoreLogic's latest home value index with Head of Research Eliza Owen. And we then follow with a drill down to the coalface on what's actually happening on the ground with leading buyer's agent Paul Glossop of Fuel Property Investment. And we conclude with his expert thoughts on what's likely to happen with high-end property values in Sydney over the next 12 months. I then share my thoughts on why you should never guarantee your kids if you're helping them to secure their first home. And we conclude on what landlords and tenants need to be doing to optimise their opportunities with property management thought leader Amy Sanderson of Your Porter Connections. To set the scene for our great conversations today, and refresh you, on, refresh you on what's transpired in property across the nation in what can only be described as a very interesting year, I'm going to draw on an adapted extract from CoreLogic's just-released Best of the Best 2020 report. There's no doubt about it, 2020 has been a momentous year, in which Australians endured the largest economic downturn since the 1930s and saw 28 years without technical recession interrupted. Several property market trends have emerged through COVID-19 as a result of social distancing restrictions that have been vital in suppressing a greater health crisis. The most obvious of these 
is that property values have been resilient. As of November 2020, Australian housing values were 1.1% higher over the year, with the estimated total value of residential real estate recorded at $7.2 trillion. While the initial shock of COVID-19 led to a 2.1% decline in national property values between April and September, the trajectory of dwelling values began to recover through to November. And early data for December is showing a continuation of this trend. Housing values have been supported by a strong mix of regulatory, monetary and fiscal measures, which have induced record low mortgage rates. The deferment of mortgage repayment for households impacted by COVID-19 support for low-income households, as well as grants and concessions for owner-occupied purchases. Moreover, CoreLogic research from the beginning of this year outlined the relatively stable nature of property as an asset, which historically has not shown the same volatility as shares and equities. Due to the illiquidity of the asset associated with long transaction times, high transactional costs and lengthy hold periods. The best of the best report for 2020 also highlights the resilience of luxury markets in Australia where the highest medium house value was once again in Darling Point and the highest medium unit value was found in Point Piper, just as it was in 2019. Now, this is not to say that suburbs have been unaffected by the pandemic. Indeed, the high end of the city market is generally more volatile to changes in economic conditions. However, this volatility also tends to see a rapid recovery in the wake of lower mortgage rates and an improvement in consumer sentiment. Perhaps even more surprising is that some of the suburbs more impacted by the pandemic are having the highest sales turnover value in the year to September. In the suburb of Melbourne, for example, unit values declined 3.4% between the onset of the pandemic in March and the end of September. The total value of sales is down 3.9% in the year to September 2020 compared with the year to 2019. Yet the suburb of Melbourne has gone from the suburb with the sixth highest total sales value in 2019 to claim the number one spot in 2020. Demand for lifestyle areas may have been exacerbated but was not necessarily triggered by COVID-19. The narrative of Australians fleeing capital cities in search of a sea change or tree change because of COVID has dominated reporting on the housing market throughout 2020. Now, it's true that regional Australia has outperformed the combined capital cities market and recent internal migration data reveals more people are leaving the cities for regional areas, especially in Victoria. Annual growth across combined regional Australian dwellings as at November 2020 was 5.7% compared with 2.4% across the combined capital cities dwelling market. But this divergence in performance can be attributed to a combination of factors, including the newfound popularity of remote working, but also less of a demand shock across regional Australia caused by border closures and the relative affordability of regional Australian dwellings. The relative popularity of lifestyle markets is also evident in the Best of the Best report, where Sunshine Beach on the Sunshine Coast has seen the highest annual capital growth in houses nationally, compared with 2019 when St Kilda in Melbourne saw the highest housing growth. Importantly, the Sunshine Coast has been a popular destination of internal migration for years. In the year to June 2019, the Sunshine Coast SA4 region had the highest volume of net internal migration of all the 88 other SA4 subregions in Australia. Incidentally, the Gold Coast was the third highest destination. COVID-19 may have exacerbated demand across the Sunshine Coast and the Gold Coast, as is the normalisation of remote work, may have empowered more Australians to make a tree change or a sea change. Rental market performance has also been highly disparate. COVID-19 has had a severe impact on select rental markets in Australia, with Greater Melbourne units falling in rent by 7% in the year to November 2020. Inner city rental markets of Sydney, Melbourne and to a lesser extent Brisbane have been particularly impacted by the closure of internal international borders where historically high demand from overseas migrants has been disrupted. Notably, 
the vast majority of overseas arrivals to Australia are initially renters. However, there's a completely different dynamic in rental markets across Perth, Darwin and other mining-related markets that's now emerged. Following the long withdrawal of invested demand and several years of low new supply additions, rental markets are now tightening. Across the suburb of South Headland, which holds the position of highest rental yields for units across the country, rents have increased significantly over the year following a long correction post-mining boom. This is also reflected in the WA capital, where Perth rent values have increased a remarkable 8.2% across dwellings over the year. Overall, the best of the best report highlights the remarkable resilience of property market performance throughout 2020, as well as the shift from demand in inner city markets to lifestyle locations. Towards the end of 2020, Australian housing markets are more broadly experiencing a recovery trend in housing market conditions off the back of the November cash interest rate reduction. And it's expected that this momentum will continue into 2021. So as you can hear, there's some very interesting insights that again reinforce the vast difference between the fearful projections that have, have and continue to dominate the mainstream press versus the reality of what has actually happened. If there is one other learning you need to take away from COVID in 2020, it's that media-generated fear on a monumental 24-7 scale bears little or no resemblance to reality. And that in a totally media-dominated world, things always sound worse than what they actually are, and most of our worst fears never come to fruition. In many ways, the real virus this year has been fear, and the media has been the medium that has spread it and cultivated it on a never-ending global 24-7-365 scale. So, instead of feeding your fears with endless doses of regurgitated and replayed media poison like an addict. Switch it off, allow yourself 30 seconds to breathe, and then get on with creating your own economy by focusing on the positives in each and every situation, because positive activity breeds positive activity. To pique your interest on the great insights that we're about to share through our property thought leaders, today's show is going to inform you on how property values have actually performed with a quip whip around the country, what factors are driving momentum in the property market, we answer the question on whether growth trends are likely to continue into next year, we dig into the detail on why Brisbane and Perth data is not necessarily showing the full picture of what's actually happening on the ground, we delve into why the Sydney market is showing the strongest growth in years, particularly at the higher end. We chat about which type of commercial assets are going to outperform the market in the next five years. I personally share some personal thoughts on why you should never guarantee your kids if you're helping them to secure their first home, before digging into the investor world of landlords, tenants and property managers by answering your key questions around exploring how landlords need to best present their rental properties to attract the best tenants. We investigate what landlords need to look for in a good property manager and finally, we outline how can tenants stand out from the crowd to secure a property they want. As you can hear, we're going to cover a lot of ground again this week on what has happened and what is actually happening in property across the nation. And in the next episode, we'll share some more in-depth insights from other industry leaders on what's going to happen in property in 2021, so keep your ears out for that. And the reason that I continue to focus on this in the short to medium term It's because of my awareness of how important the next few months is going to be to any of you who are serious about securing your financial future by getting invested. If you're still sitting on your hands, while your hard-earned savings and buying power are going backwards sitting in a bank account, whose interest rate is well below the inflation rate, then now is the time you need to be investing in growth assets. I don't care whether you invest in financial instruments like shares or property, but you need to be investing now before you miss the boat. You're really going to kick yourself in a couple of years if you don't take advantage of the rare opportunity that sits right in front of us now. And I say this as a very conservative investor myself, and I don't get excited like this very often. So feel free to reach out to us at www.knowhowproperty.com.au 
or email me personally at bushy at knowhowproperty.com.au if you want to explore more without any obligation whatsoever. And before we get into it, I also want to ask you another personal favour. In order to help improving these podcasts, I'm looking for your feedback on which episode you've enjoyed most so far and why, along with what I need to be doing more or less of. Your suggestions on topics of interest that you'd like me to explore would be good, and even guests that you'd love me to interview. So hit me up at bushy at knowhowproperty.com.au because I'd really appreciate your feedback. So thanks again in advance. Be water, my friend. And in the meantime, enjoy these great conversations with Eliza Owen, Paul Glossop and Amy Sanderson. Hello and welcome to this week's show and welcome to Real Estate Talk. It's Bushy Martin here from Know How Property Finance. I'm also the host of the Get Invested podcast and it's great to be back. I'm uh, sitting in warming the chair again for the infamous Kevin Turner. And this week we've got another absolutely action-packed show for you and there's always a lot happening in the property sphere. And this week we're going to go from the macro down to the micro. We're going to start with a big picture look at some more positive news on recent data that's uh, released on the property market with Elizabeth Eliza Owen from CoreLogic. We're going to follow that with uh, looking at what's happening at the coalface with a discussion with Paul Glossop, the leading uh, buyer's agent for what's happening around the country. And then we're going to check in to see what both landlords and tenants need to be doing uh, in relation to optimising their position as they move forward with Amy Sanderson from Port Connections. So before I conclude, I'm then going to do a little bush bite on what's happening uh, in making sure you never guarantee your kids into home ownership. So obviously we've got a lot to cover off today. Uh, so let's kick it off because last month we saw some very positive news come out of the Home Value Index from CoreLogic with some green shirts starting to appear. And this week we saw the release of Westpac's House Price Expectations Survey, which saw jumps of 12%. And we're now positioned 5.5% above the long-term average, which is signalling very strong resurgence in housing values. So, so to see what's actually happening now, we're joined by a Real Estate Talk regular and the Head of Research with CoreLogic, Eliza Rowan. Welcome back, Eliza. Hi, thanks for having me. Eliza, I reckon you must have one of the best jobs in the industry, yeah, looking at all the research and the information that's happening. And uh, I always love listening to your insights and what's, what's moving forward. So uh, I know you've just released this month's Home Value Indices. Uh, how did property values perform in November? November marked the second consecutive month of growth in the housing market after what was a bit of a COVID-19-induced dip in house prices. Essentially, we saw between the onset of Stage 2 restrictions in March and September um, the Australian property market started to decline. Uh, now, at the beginning of the year, the consensus was that there would be this big peak-to-trough decline of about 10% nationally. Uh, of course, that didn't happen. And in the period, property values on aggregate have fallen just 2%. So as of October and November, that started to trend towards a recovery. Uh, and we've seen over November, the aggregate um, housing values have increased by 0.8% of a percent. It's been a little bit mixed between the capital cities. Uh, every capital city has seen an increase, which is great news, especially for Melbourne, where prices have been most impacted by the virus. Um, but we've seen that it is the smaller capital cities, Adelaide, Perth, Darwin, Canberra, um, that have seen increases of above 1% in the space of a month. Yeah, of interest, you mentioned last month that you started to see a little bit of a divergence between the housing and the unit markets. Has that sort of flowed on to what's been happening in November? Yeah, look, I, we are definitely seeing that houses are now outperforming units. So if we look across the combined capital cities market, for example, the three months to November saw a 1.5% increase in house values whereas units saw a 2% decline in values. 
I I hesitate to say that the the whole trend is is really divergent because even though um, values fell across units, the rate of decline eased. So if you look at the rolling growth rate, it is still starting to come up into an upswing. It's just that the unit values are still declining at this stage. Um, not much of a surprise there. Unit assets through the pandemic have underperformed. Um, due to the fact that they tend to have a higher portion of investor participation. Um, rental markets have been damaged by the closure of international borders where we see um, overseas migrants typically rent when they first come to Australia. So that closure has been a big impact to rental markets, a big impact to unit stock. Um, and then there's... Um, you know, just the fact that houses have proven more desirable in terms of the space that they offer, the autonomy, owning the land, all of that kind of added value that you get with houses. I think where the trend is still really divergent, as in you have house momentum rising and the declining units continuing to deteriorate, that's still happening across Sydney. And again, it could be due to Sydney's historic exposure to overseas migration as a source of new housing demand. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Now, uh, we've, we've seen that uh, last month, I think you mentioned that a number of the capital cities, including Brisbane and, and Adelaide, actually uh, have exceeded their previous peak in terms of the, the mean property values. Are you seeing similar moves in, in other capitals as a result of uh, results this month? Yeah, Bushy, that's exactly right. So we've seen across um, Brisbane, Adelaide, Hobart, uh, and Canberra, dwelling values are all at a record high. So, uh, I mean, this is quite a different trend to say Perth and Darwin, where even though Perth and Darwin are now showing quite strong monthly growth rates, and in fact, Darwin has been the best performer since the onset of COVID-19, it's worth recognising the difference that some of those cities are at a record high whereas Perth and Darwin are just starting an upswing after what has been about a six-year correction. Um, so price levels across Perth and Darwin are sort of sitting where they were around 2006, 2007, uh, whereas, yeah, across Brisbane, Hobart, uh, BACT and Adelaide, you've got these really affordable markets, somewhat hidden gems in terms of the strong rental and capital growth that have been offered and uh, they're, they're sort of enjoying that record high level of value as a result. Yeah, excellent. Now, uh, sort of following on from that, it's, it's really pleasing to see uh, some positive moves in the Melbourne market, which is probably the one that's, that's appeared to have suffered most, particularly given the lockdown in position in that area. We're starting to see some positive moves there. And what about uh, in relation to uh, sales volumes? I mean, I, I know that prices were constrained a little by limited limited listings for sale. We're starting to see a significant lift in that. What, what's that doing to uh, price movements as you're reading it? Yeah, great question. So on the one hand, part of looking at the housing market through COVID-19 has been looking at values which weren't very affected. The other side of that has been transaction activity, which really is much more volatile and has been much more impacted by, uh, I think, both the physical restrictions on transacting property that come from not being able to hold open homes, not being able to host on-site auctions, but also just the general feel of uncertainty that, that would have put buyers and sellers off during this time. So in the transaction space nationally, we saw an enormous dip in sales volumes from April, sorry, from March to April, about a 30% decline in the space of a month, which is huge for that time of year. But that has rebounded quite strongly. So nationally, we're seeing that in the three months to November, sales volumes are actually 1% higher than the equivalent period in 2019, which yes. I think really speaks to the sense of normalcy that's returned to the market, the fact that it's higher than those pre-COVID levels. We did see a slump across the Melbourne market over the September quarter as a result of um, stage three and four restrictions. But that is, uh, again, starting to recover quite strongly now, particularly in the listing space. You know, you talk about... Um, 
revenge consumption through COVID-19. I think there was definitely some revenge listing happening in Melbourne. Um, Typical new listings being added to the market during the height of restrictions was probably about 2,000 properties a month. That's since exploded to about 8,000 properties a month. So um, it will actually, I think, be a really interesting test for the Melbourne market because you have now got this big influx in, in stock and we're sort of watching closely to see how well it's actually being absorbed. Um, and so far, it seems that total stock isn't growing as quickly as new listings, which suggests that a decent portion of that new stock coming to market is getting absorbed. Mm, interesting times ahead then. Uh, if we take a step back from that for a minute then, what, what do you believe are the factors that are driving momentum in the property market generally? I think the big one has been the cash rate. Um, It's actually not uncommon to see increases in property values during a negative economic shock. Australia's housing market grew during events like the dot-com bubble burst, the Asian financial crisis, and even during, say, the early 90s recession, the peak-to-drop decline in property values across Australia was only about 4%. Now, during those periods of negative economic shock when employment rises, that's when the Reserve Bank responds by lowering the cost of debt. And when we're lowering the cost of debt, even though, yes, there have been a lot of people who've been devastated by job loss and income loss, there are still those people who have their incomes intact And the low mortgage rates and certainly the record low mortgage rates as we're seeing now, it really encourages people to borrow and buy. That puts upward pressure on prices. In fact, the Reserve Bank of Australia did some research suggesting that a 1% reduction in the cash rate can lead to an 8% increase in property values over the following two years. So the RBA's cut the cash rate by 65 basis points, so 0.7% of a percent essentially. So that suggests that there would be upward pressure on prices. Other factors are, I think, the fact that this was a bit of a manufactured downturn. Now that the economy is bouncing back quite quickly, not exactly a V-shaped recovery, but bouncing back quite quickly, the low mortgage rates have converged with this rapid increase in consumer sentiment. And that's really, I think, aiding that recovery. And then, as you mentioned before, stock levels are relatively low. So you've got a time where demand is rising uh, against very low levels of stock available, particularly in regional Australia. The stock on market is around 30% below what we would have seen at this time last year. Right, very interesting. So I guess reinforcing again that property really is a game of finance in terms of one of the key drivers. And, of course, we're likely to see further loosening in relation to increasing potential borrowing capacity with the changes in legislation that are likely to come in in March next year. So the question that's on everyone's lips, uh, Eliza, is the growth trend that you're seeing likely to continue into next year as you see it? So I think, yes, in the near term, it seems likely that unless we get another huge spike in COVID-19 or there's some other massive headwind or shock that hits the market, I think we're likely to see an increase in property values in the near term. One thing I would say is that there are headwinds that the property market could still face in terms of the ongoing slack in the labour force. Um, uh, the the potential for the resurgence of COVID. It's interesting you bring up the regulatory space. And and I think the fact that Australia does have very high housing debt levels, I do think regulators will be keeping an eye on rising debt relative to income and rising house prices. The RBA can't necessarily control that, but other um, statutory authorities like the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, for example, they can tweak things. They have tweaked things. They did that, uh, you know, when they put a cap on interest-only lending in 2017. So in 2020, maybe we'll see APRA do something around loan-to-value ratios or or something like that. Um, And, you know, in terms of balancing rising house prices with tightening, relaxing regulation. I think that'll be really interesting to see what does happen in 2021. I 100% agree. It's going to be a a very uh, interesting year ahead and the the levers to make change are going to be very interesting. The traditional ones, as you and I know, interest rates, we we can't do anything more with interest rates. So it's only really through the prudential arm that uh, they'll be able to influence bank policy that can tamper access to credit. 
But we've also got to be balancing what the RBA is trying to do in relation to getting us back out of recession and, and getting the uh, inflation rate back to where they want it. And also, of course, bringing the uh, unemployment back within the, the target range and making sure that our Aussie dollar is also uh, kept at a level that makes us competitive. So uh, I'd hate to be sitting in the RBA's chair, but it's going to be a very interesting ride. And, and I'm sure we'll be looking forward to some great further insights from you moving forward in that, in that regard, Eliza. Thank you. Excellent. Great to have you. Now, stay with us because after the break, we're going to get out the microscope and have a chat to a leader's buyers agent, Paul Glossop, on what's happening at the coalface. So stay tuned. And this is Real Estate Talk. Welcome back to the show. Now, there's often quite a difference between statistics and reality, particularly when it comes to property. And you may well have heard the old story of the statistician who's got his head in the fire and his feet in the bucket of ice. And when they ask him how he's doing, he says, on average, we're doing okay. And it's often very similar in property because means and averages don't always tell you actually what is happening on the ground. So to check in to see what is really happening at the coalface, we're joined by Leaders Buyers Agent and the MD of Pure Property Investment, Paul Glossop. Welcome and great to see you, Paul. Thanks for having me again, Bushy. Great to see you, mate. Always good to see you, mate. Now, uh, we're, I want to sort of delve into that subject in quite a bit of detail. And firstly, I'd just like you to share with us why you think that some of the data on Brisbane and Perth in particular are not necessarily showing us the full picture of what's actually happening on the ground with property. Yeah, it's a um, it's a bit of a, a strange phenomenon in the market at the moment, and I think um, generally speaking, uh, my experience in in being in working in the the property investment space as well as working as an investment property buyers agent, I don't think I've seen a time nationally that has shown uh, as a uniform uplift in property prices and and a lack of supply than we have actually seen in the last probably three months. And if I drill specifically into uh, both Brisbane and the Perth markets. Uh, right now, um, through both the lack of supply as well as the days on market data and the, and the actual price points that are showing average uh, price point sales, they truly aren't reflective of where the markets are actually showing properties which are actually under contract or have already transacted, even potentially off market. And um, anecdotally, and, and I'm always a bit reluctant to talk about anecdotal evidence uh, when it's sort of an N equals one type of scenario, but when you're buying the vast amount of property that we are, as well as working with a whole host of different uh, agents across a huge amount of different markets, we've actually noted that I would dare say that anywhere between probably 30 and 50 separate occasions over the last three months, we've seen prices that we would be expecting of a particular purchase of a property now being reflective of anywhere between five and 8% higher if we were to buy the equivalent property, even though the data is not reflecting that growth at the moment. And they're in margins or markets with, with probably price points as low as early to mid 200s, right through to markets, which are probably in the mid to high eight to 900s. So it's not necessarily just one specific property type or price point. I would highlight that it is probably more specific uh, to the freestanding uh, or detached markets as opposed to the attached markets, however. Yeah, very interesting. Why do you think that's happening? Is it a lack of stock, but still strong demand? What's in behind that? Yeah, I think those two things are most certainly there. And if we rewind sort of pre-COVID, uh, I think specifically the Brisbane market was actually in its early stages of, of this growth cycle and it probably went to a little bit of a, a hibernation um, around about March, April for the best part of probably three or four months. Uh, the, the dynamics and the actual market specifics were already there for lack of supply. We had a, a above average interstate migration. We had good jobs creation as well as we had very, very good rental yields decreasing uh, vacancy rates and all those other major KPIs that we're looking for to show good growth markets. And Perth was in a very similar position. But what it did is that I guess we went through three, four, five months of essentially sit tight and transactions obviously fell off a cliff. We saw probably a 60, 70% reduction in transactions, but then we had that pent-up demand. And that pent-up demand is then all of a sudden had the shackles released and that has actually only really just started. And that was pre, you know, we only just had the Queensland borders open as of yesterday as we're recording this, um, which is, you know, it still doesn't show in the data. And then we've got other things which are coming to the fold with Perth and, and WA now talking about their hard border lifting. Um, these things actually haven't even had the effect in the market yet. So 
things like uh, demand that was already there, which is now all of a sudden being able to be provided, as well as confidence and sentiment, which literally changed within a matter of a couple of weeks once we saw the end of sort of that September major lockdown and job keeper, job seeker movements. Um, the, you know, the, the sentiment, it's amazing, but you talk, we talk about sentiment being a big driver, but ultimately when you see the actual impact of it, the, the property market in those areas is absolutely showing exactly what sentiment does to markets. Yeah, it's very uh, interesting and exciting, actually. But let, let's sort mm. of swing back to your backyard now and to an area that uh, you know intimately well. Uh, why is the uh, premium side of the Sydney market showing such strong price growth? It's it's amazing. It's it's truly an amazing time in that market. And I literally was only in a meeting with a, a Sydney elite Sydney broker uh, about two hours ago, who who specifically talked about and, and his clientele is in a east, in a south, in a west Sydney markets, and predominantly his property types and his clients have been those one to one and a half million dollar owner occupiers who are looking to upgrade. Where he's talked about a whole host of pre approvals he had at the start of the year and people sort of transacting and transacting quite well in that owner occupier space, but now those same people who had that idea of uh, the the wanting to upgrade are now getting priced out of those markets at a north of two and in some cases north of three and four million. And when we come, it goes back down to what are we seeing and why are those markets outperforming and seeing exponential growth? I think there's a few things. One of which is a there is a lot of surplus cash in those household households all of a sudden we've got people who aren't taking their their overseas trips to aspen uh, you know their, their their christmas holidays to fiji and i say it tongue in cheek but i mean ultimately there is a certain caliber of, of of residents in australia who obviously are a very high net worth and have a lot of disposable income and they literally haven't been able to spend it so they can't spend it on holidays they've also realized that the change in in the dynamic from COVID has forced a lot of those white collars and professionals to say that this isn't a temporary solution or a temporary scenario where I don't have to actually potentially go into my office five days a week. So I'm actually spending more time at home. So I'm prepared to invest more in actually where I live now, but also where I work a lot more. And that's actually seeing people saying, I want that extra bedroom or I want that larger backyard and I'm prepared to pay more for the luxury and also that lifestyle location. So the beachside locations, which still have some access to the arteries of train, as well as half decent commuter belts to the city. We're not talking 10 minutes from the city anymore. We're talking an hour and even potentially two or three hours. Those markets are absolutely on fire in those beachfront or a couple of blocks back from beachfront and bayside locations. And there's just not any supply. I mean, I'll Ultimately, you can't re recreate those markets anyway. But secondly, there is no additional properties being built in those locations. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I heard a, a figure quoted just recently that's about $70 billion worth of discretionary monies that would normally go on to overseas holidays, but now sitting in people's back pockets, ready to invest in exactly what you were talking about, closer to home, uh, extending the home, they're, they're spending more time there. So mm -hmm. Given your knowledge of that market, what's, what's your estimate uh, on an educated basis of what sort of growth you think that you'd like to see in that segment over the next 12 months, Paul? But I, I truly expect that seeing what we've seen over the last two months alone in some of those higher-end markets, and I speak about Sydney, but I know that, that parts of the inner-city Brisbane and inner city Melbourne markets are most certainly there. And, and I haven't necessarily got the same intimate knowledge of the Adelaide as well as Perth markets, but I am anecdotally, again, aware that there has been similar movements there. But if I speak towards Sydney specifically, what we're referring to now, and data that actually hasn't flowed through yet, I actually wouldn't be surprised if we saw 10% growth by the middle of next year, not necessarily the full calendar year. Um, and, and I've already seen it in certain properties that have transacted in the last two months. I've seen anecdotally again, 10% um, growth in properties that would have transacted far less only two or three months ago. And we haven't seen the effect of potential stamp duty changes, responsible lending laws, which haven't had an impact on the market yet. You know, these are things which if you start to add that fuel to the fire, I don't see why we, we shouldn't be expecting 10% at a minimum for the next calendar year. Yeah, I totally agree. I support what you're saying there in our, the local Adelaide market where we're very active. We're certainly seeing a lot of uh, investors and property purchasers generally paying well above the agent's recommended listing price just to secure the property. So it's, it's mm. certainly something that's a, a much more widespread than I think uh, a lot of the data is is indicating at the moment. Yeah, and you you probably would have seen the same indices data come out from CoreLogic yesterday, but I mean, looking at that data that comes out you know, very regularly, it's the first time, I think since 2002, since we've seen a uniformed 
consistent growth position for a month on month on every single capital city and every single regional center. And when you see that in one graph and one time in one month, you start to think, wow, this is a unique point in time that we've just entered into. I um, totally agree. I mean, we all know that the property generally was headed for pretty uh, good growth prior to COVID. Uh, COVID to some degree has acted as a bit of an accelerator because we're now seeing a lot of government money flushed into the system. They're bringing forward a lot of infrastructure projects as also promoting a lot of incentives that are stimulating activity in the property market. So we're certainly in for a very good uh, road ahead as far as the residential property is concerned. And let's, let's sort of change tack and have a look at the commercial sphere because, again, uh, commercial office buildings in particular have, have copped a fair bit of bad press in recent times, uh, given the impact of the contagion. But from your view and your your play in the market, which type of uh, commercial properties and assets do you think are going to outperform uh, over the next five years or so? Absolutely. And I think that's that's more of a space where it's not going to be a rising tide lifts all ships. And it's going to be very, very interesting how the next five years plays out in that market. Because it will take, I believe it will take three to five years to actually see the true fallout because you're typically talking long existing leases and a lot of incentives that are in place. So people can't just throw in the keys and say, I'm out next 12 months. So I think that's most certainly got a longer tail on it. That being said, though, and I was just looking at a transaction that um, uh, Mr. David Gonski was actually part of in, in a city of, in, in a Sydney, which was a, a Bunnings property, which was picked up only, I think, three years ago for the best part of about 17 odd million large corner block site, which has been turned into a large logistics hub centre in Alexandria and inner west of, of New South Wales or Sydney. And that transacted over $70 million uh, as of only yesterday, which is a bit over a 300% uplift in three years. Not a bad earn on that. But I guess that the reason why I highlight that particular asset is there's certain property types, i.e. logistics, bulky goods, warehousing, that are also associated with the trade sector, as well as the healthcare sectors and boutique, much smaller, much higher usage areas, which are not necessarily all within a larger city centre location and a mandatory and, and absolutely necessary property types, which are going to perform very well. And they can't be replicated. You can't change use of an office block to a logistics centre and you can't change use of the local GP's office to a, a larger multi-density office in the city. So there's certain properties which can't be reappropriated easily, which I think are going to be the ones which will still stay solid. But the reality is, is that we, we actually see that there's a certain huge amount of cohort of property, i.e. larger or higher density office, as well as probably that strip mall retail, which was already dying a slow death pre-COVID, uh, and, and hospitality, which to be fair, has always been risky in the wrong areas and the wrong property types, which will consistently go through this transition phase. I think the strip mall um, and 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 potentially even that that Westfields type of property, um, which are the Stocklands larger shopping centres, which are the really interesting ones. Those, along with the high density office blocks, which I personally am unsure as to what the future holds in that. Now, I don't necessarily suggest that we're going to see some of those scenarios that we're seeing over in the Midwest of America, where you've got the targets and the Sears that have been sold and will literally never be reappropriated. We're not the same country demographic as that. We never will be. We're just too dense in certain pockets. But I think the repurposing, the reuse is something which I don't necessarily think we've got a clear answer to that yet, which I personally see is, is probably where the higher risk sits in that sort of, it's not to say it's a certain price point or a certain certain lease type, but I think those property types are going to be the ones which have a lot more to play out. And I personally would be avoiding in the probably the next one to three years. Mm, very interesting times ahead, mate. You've shared some uh, really good insights with us. Uh, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to the window of opportunity that, that lays before us and those investors who are in a position to take advantage of the opportunities that are emerging, it's a very good time to do so. Uh, Paul, uh, it looks like things are going to get pretty busy on the beach. Where you they, are, mate. they are indeed, mate. I think they're, I think they're going to get busy right across that that finance and property sector. And as much as it's exciting, it's quite daunting, mate, because um, you know we've been we've been preparing, and and I think we we're almost in this position this time last year before a little pandemic came across and, and wiped us all um, to the sidelines for a period of time. But you know, we've seen from our business perspective that we've never had more inquiry and we've never been busier than where we are now. But the challenge also comes is when you get busy. You need to find the supply and that's where the challenge is, is finding appropriately priced properties in those correct locations starts to become a lot harder. So chicken and the egg from, from your and I's end, I think. It is. No, that's awesome. Mate. Look, I really appreciate some taking the time out of your busy day. 
Uh, to, for those listeners who want to learn more about Paul, he's written a fantastic book, The Surfer's Guide to Property Investment. He's an active surfer and it's all about lifestyle as, as it is for yours truly. So uh, really thank you for uh, spending some time today and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon on Real Estate Talk. Thanks, Paul. Absolute pleasure, mate. Welcome back. Now, across the country, we're seeing quite a bit of variation by both location and property type in terms of its impact on rental markets. Now, in some areas, we're seeing a glut of properties like city apartments. In others, we're seeing tenants that are really struggling to get their hands on the property that they want. So to discuss how both landlords and tenants need to optimise the opportunities to better position themselves in the market that we're in right across the country. We're joined by property management industry expert and someone who has been the head of a network for the largest trusted franchise in the country for many years before recently moving across to your port of connections. And I'm talking about Amy Sanderson. Welcome aboard, Amy. Hi, Bushy. Thanks for having me. Now, really good to have you on today. Now, Amy, uh, let's start with landlords to have a look at what they need to be doing in relation to presenting their properties to make sure they're securing the best talent. What's your thoughts there? Absolutely. I think every investor with their property, they need to put themselves in the headspace of would I actually live here? Now, forget the location, forget what the property makeup is, but having a look at whether the home is inviting for people coming in, because essentially we need to remember that tenants want a home and we need to make it feel that way. So it might be a simple lick of paint. It might be new carpets. It could even just be a carpet clean. Having a look at what the light fittings are, the window coverings, and just making sure that it feels homely and really giving that first impression, you know, making it right and making it great. Yeah, it's really good to try and get fresh eyes on it because, you know, if we've owned the property for a while, often we 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 stop seeing what the property really looks like. And it's something that I, I often suggest is to get a good property manager to come through and have a look at the property with you. And they can often point out the good, the bad and the ugly and some very simple things that can really improve the uh, appeal of the property in, as far as a tenant's concerned. So now while we're talking about property managers, as, as you and I both know, our property managers make or break experience as far as holding on to an investment property is concerned. So uh, given the importance of a property manager, what do you think landlords need to look for in finding a good property manager to look after their property? Essentially, you want to find someone that you like and that you trust, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have a relationship with them and you want to be on the same page. A lot of people will say to me that they want the cheapest agent. They don't want to pay a lot of money for it. And I have to say the cheapest agent isn't necessarily the one who costs the least. The cheapest agent is the one who puts the most back in your pocket. And so when you're looking at and interviewing uh, property managers, you want to see how on the ball they are in terms of, you know, where is the current rental market sitting? Now, Bush, you mentioned that, you know, across the country there are a couple of different speeds that um, the rental market's going. We've got Metro CBD where we've got huge vacancies where we're having to really struggle to find people to out in the burbs and our regional areas where we can't keep up with, you know, the, the need for properties. There's so many people wanting them. And so as an investor, you need to have a property manager who is going to guide you in the best possible way to position the pricing of your property to maximise that return. Um, so you need someone versed in that. You want to make sure that they are connecting you with a sales agent on a regular basis so that you can keep abreast of what the sales price of that property would be. You want them to connect you with a home loans, a mortgage broker, so that, again, you can make sure that you're consistently reviewing that mortgage that you're on and making sure that it's structured 
in the best way for you. Um, your insurances, um, your household utilities, having all of those things in play. And that's where, you know, my, my job at your border kicks in a little bit because we can help agents help the people in their local communities in terms of what's happening with a lot of those insurance policies and the connections of the property, not just setting up brand new policies and connections, but also to a regular review. So, for example, I did a couple of um, electricity reviews today. I did one last week it was saving someone 36 percent and one today was a whopping 46 percent which is huge in the scheme of things um you know it's much better in someone in in your pocket than you know an energy retailer so you want a property manager who is going to introduce you to the right people again to make sure that you're getting that money back in your pocket yeah i think you make a really good point there amy because property investment is more about the investment than it is about the property. And yes, property is an important part of it, clearly, but you really need a property manager who's helping you to manage the investment side. And if they are effectively coordinating and connecting and, and project managing all of the people who need to be part of your team that's going to deliver the best investment result for that property, then you've got someone who knows what they're on about. And I, I guess a couple of thoughts, and I'll, I'll share my own personal views on what, uh, we look for when in a property manager. I'd, I'd be interested in your your feedback on this. But when we're looking for a property manager for our own properties, we're looking for someone who uh, invests in property themselves, so they understand what it's like to be a landlord. Uh, has been in the industry for a period, so they, they understand the legislation because, as we know, it's becoming much more litigious than it ever has. And you really need someone who understands the the laws of the day to make sure that you're being protected and not standing on stepping on landmines that you don't know about. Thirdly, we want to make sure that the specific property manager who's managing our property isn't managing too many properties because otherwise they're not going to spend much time managing ours. So normally we make sure that the property managers looking after our properties aren't managing any more than 120. And we want to make sure the property manager lives within 20 minutes of the property because if they're spending all day in the car driving around all over the suburbs from one property to the other, they're not actually spending much time managing your property. So there's some of the, and the, the, the final thing, we, we try to find someone who's managing the property end to end. We're not big fans of the sort of pod system where you've got one person doing leasing, one person doing maintenance, one person doing the admin, because there's too many links in the chain. And we, we find that uh, things slip through the cracks and we don't get quite as good as a result. Uh, are there any other things other, over and above that that you think uh, need to be added to that list, Amy? I, th I think that's a fabulous list and it goes back to the cheapest agent, you know, and in terms of the cheapest agent isn't necessarily going to be the cheapest because, as you said, the number of properties, the experience levels, um, and, and that whole piece, and that costs money to employ someone of that calibre and to keep the number of properties under management at a reasonable level. And so an, a business has to pay a, a decent amount of money to have someone qualified in that aspect. So, again, if you're skimping on the fees, you potentially won't be able to tick all of those boxes. And the scary part of that is it could cost you money. If they're not doing the inspections as they should or they're not qualified on the inspections, they might miss something really big. So you could end up with a repair that now becomes a major, major repair, but if it was picked up early, it could have been a simple fix. Or even worse, you could have a tenant who injures themselves and we now have someone who is injured and a lawsuit. Yeah, spot on. That's so, really good advice. And the... Uh, so flow on from that, if we put some perspective around this, uh, I heard a, a really good property manager say to me recently that the difference between a property manager that charges you 8% to manage your property and 11% to manage your property on the average place is about the cost of a cup of coffee a week. Yeah. That's all we're talking between an agent that's funded to a level to do the job properly and one that is really going to struggle to service because they're, they're spreading themselves too thin. So I've made some excellent points there. Now, I'd love to sort of uh, conclude by having a look from the tenant perspective because, uh, again, in certain areas around the country, tenants are really struggling. There's really tight vacancies in, in a lot of areas, particularly, as you mentioned, the metropolitan uh, locations. Uh, how can tenants stand out from the crowd in their rental application to make sure that they're positioning themselves best to secure a property that they like, Amy? 
Absolutely. So preparation is key. Um, and before you go and look at a property, you want to be prepared. So I always keep in the back of my mind, what are the things that a property manager or an investor want to look at in terms of a tenant? And the two main criteria are their ability to pay the rent and their ability to maintain the property. So while an agency will give you an application form and it will have certain boxes that you need to fill in, and don't get me wrong, if you can fill those boxes in, fill them in. But there are many situations where it's like, I don't fit into the boxes. So in that regard, I would I would have a cover letter and an explanation. But again, I need to be able to show and prove that I can pay the rent and that I can maintain the property. So it might be that, you know, yes, your income is a component of that, but then also showing that you have form in paying that money, whether it be in a previous rental, whether it be in a mortgage, um, you might in terms of income, and it's not it's not just about having a job. It's like, where does that money come in? So it might be that, you know, you've got a pension. It might be that, you know, you're self-employed, in which case your accountant is going to kick in um, and, and give some of that information required. We need to make sure on the application form, though, that there are no boxes left unturned. So even if there's a bit that you can't fill in, you've got to have a balance somewhere else to explain why you can't fill it in and this is where that information is to give the um the property manager or the investor that peace of mind that you're the right person now that's well and good bushy but the problem is we have got this situation where you know at the moment i'm traveling up the um east coast of a of Australia. So I'm traveling from Sydney up to the Gold Coast at the moment. And I've been talking to agents along the way, and there is such a shortfall in properties. I caught up with a lady the other day in an office, and she was catching a bus to Sydney every night. So she had somewhere safe to sleep. You know, and she, I was helping her, how do we fill in your application form so that we can get your best foot forward? But the problem is not with her application form. There are just not the properties available. Yes. You know, and so, you know, there was a whole realm of other places that I was helping her because, again, we just want everyone to be safe and secure. Um, but in terms of when you're looking at properties, have your application ready to go and go and have a look at everything you possibly can. So this whole idea in a tight market where there isn't much on offer, you can't be fussy. You know, you, you, you might have your wish list, but you're going to have to work on what you negotiate and get out there and see as many properties as you can and apply and apply and apply. And I would be staying in touch with the agents too, because sometimes things don't hit the internet. You know, yeah. they lease them before. So you want to stay front and centre. I think you make a very good point there. If you're relying on the application, which is often read in cold, then you're not really getting a, the property manager who's making that decision is not really getting a sense of who you are. If you're actually fronting up and, and talking to the property managers on the ground and building a relationship with them, then they're more likely to be looking at you versus someone unknown that they're, they're reading on, a, on an A4 sheet of paper. Amy, uh, you've really given us some great insights today. Uh, there's uh, things that uh, landlords can take away, that tenants can take away, and a better understanding now of uh, what to look for in a good property manager. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. That's a, another wrap for this week's great show. Uh, before we sign off, I'd like to give another massive thanks to Eliza Ryan from CoreLogic, to Paul Glossop from Pure Property Investment, and to Amy uh, from Porter Connections uh, for sharing their very valuable time and their really great insights on how to better position yourself in what's happening in the exciting world that is property right now. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance. I'm also the host of the Get Invested podcast, so feel free to come and join me and listen to some deep dive conversations with successful investors at all level. Uh, you enjoy a great week. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, this is Real Estate Talk. Well, Freedom Fighters, how good was that? To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. That's H-E-L-L-O at khgroup.com.au. Or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. 
So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you'll live forever and live as if you'll die.